Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. The World Health Organization has designated climate change the top risk to global healthcare. The relationship between climate change and human health is becoming increasingly pronounced as health systems and organizations are responding to public and private sustainability initiatives to mitigate climate risks while advancing the pursuit of health equity. As both a contributor to climate change and responder to its impacts, the healthcare industry has a unique opportunity to be a leader in the climate space. This topic is probably more relevant than ever, given some of the changes that we've seen in some catastrophic types of weather recently. And today, we are joined by Vynamics, Ryan Hummel, Steph Hung, and Ali May, to help us understand the NHS's pledge to reach net zero emissions and how the healthcare industry can play a leading role in our efforts to promote greener business practices. Welcome team, hope everybody is doing well today. Ali, I want to start with you right away. Can you help us just understand what net zero means and why it's relevant to healthcare? So you might have heard of net zero before. It's a very popular term. And what net zero really means is it's the state at which greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere are balanced by removal of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And that's a really important point for all of us because that is the state at which global warming will stop and then hopefully and ambitiously, we can start to remove greenhouse gases from the, from the atmosphere. And in the latest Paris Agreement, there was a lot of focus on net zero and the need for, for governments and organizations to play their part to reach that state. And it's important, Ali, right? Because I think oftentimes we think of climate change being a separate issue from things going on in the healthcare industry. But when you really look at, at the data, one suggests that the increasing issue of climate change is really a driver of utilization in healthcare because of the exacerbation of chronic diseases or really, really severe weather events that trigger hospitalizations due to injuries. So I think the two go hand in hand, especially when we talk about like some pretty specific elements of climate change and how that plays into an individual's health and well-being and and drives them to utilize healthcare services. Exactly, Mindy. And there's different scales at play here. So you have extreme weather events that are all over the news and everyone can see how that results in healthcare utilization. But you've also got at the other end increases in COPD in areas that have poor air quality and also increasing air pollution links with dementia. So really impacting healthcare utilization at all ends of the spectrum. And this is uh, becoming a big priority for the NHS now. That wasn't always the case, right, Steph, that that this was not a priority for the NHS, but things have changed. But when you look back on the NHS's history related to climate change, what do you see and what happens going forward? It's interesting when you think of some of the industries who you would typically consider top contributors to greenhouse gases, I think for me, healthcare didn't always come top of mind. However, I was pretty surprised to see that in the UK, the NHS alone actually accounts for about 4% of the country's greenhouse gases. When you think about how much goes into running a healthcare system, that actually does make a lot of sense. 
And the NHS England has actually made a lot of progress since 1999 to reduce not only their carbon footprint, but also their water footprint. But there are definitely still a lot of areas like pharmaceuticals that represent a major carbon hotspot when prescribed in areas like primary care and community services. And Steph, I think that's a great point on, on medicines as clearly one of the key drivers of the NHS's um, carbon emissions, especially things like anesthetics that have a disproportionately high, high greenhouse gas impact. But also, if we categorise it, you've got things like estates, so heating of all the hospitals in the UK. You've got the travel of ambulances picking up patients, but also you need to consider how doctors are getting to appointments and, and, and how patients are getting to and from hospitals in their own private vehicles. One that's definitely been in the news recently is supply chain, whether that's because of PPE or, or other materials that the NHS is struggling to get hold of. And then also we have the food in the canteens. So Steph, as you say, it really goes beyond just the medicines in the hospital and plenty of areas that the NHS needs to address if they want to become net zero. Thanks for talking through some of those drivers. I know later in the conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about how we're doing towards some of the goals, but you mentioned supply chain emissions as one of the drivers and supply chain emissions. When you look at some of the Commonwealth fund numbers, both globally in the UK and even in the US attribute so much of this and with these supply chain issues impacting global decision-making, has that heightened or made the quest for net zero more difficult for the NHS in, in the UK? I think that's a great point. And in the world we're in today where there are supply chain issues, there is supply chain disruption across all industries, the position the NHS is in now is, is it really our priority to focus on making the supply chain sustainable and green when we're actually in a situation where we're struggling to even get the raw materials or, or get the medicines or get the PPE? As you say, in, in that world where the supply chains are disrupted, the priorities do shift almost back to a, a less mature state where you're just trying to get the materials that you need. Ali, as you were going through the drivers, I found them to be pretty interesting because I wasn't thinking in that context as you were talking about what, what contributors are. I think even more shocking to me, though, was the high emissions rate stuff that you pointed out. So when we think about what the NHS is doing to address their large emissions rate, what does that look like? How is it showing up right now? Because there does seem to be a commitment to this, but what do they do going forward? So back in late January of 2020, the NHS actually launched their Four Greener NHS campaign. And then not only a couple of weeks later, the WHO declared COVID-19 as a global health emergency. And I think that really amplified the need to not only address the health emergency, but also the climate emergency. And so with that momentum, they actually released their net zero transformation strategy called Delivering a Net Zero National Health Service, which highlights two of their main commitments. And the first is looking around their NHS carbon footprint. So for emissions that they can control directly, they, they wanna be able to reach net zero by 2040 with the ambition to reach 80% reduction by the year 2028. And then for emissions that they can influence, so what is also known as their NHS Carbon Footprint Plus, they wanna be able to reach net zero by 2045. And I think you know, while these commitments are really great and have been outlined within their net zero transformation strategy, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of you know, addressing the practical levels and what they need to do in order to reach their net zero targets. 
Exactly, Steph. And I think that practical perspective is probably the challenging piece here because as, as you referenced, we're talking about 4% of the UK's emissions as one organization. And how are they going to break that down and actually address it and make meaningful change? Because the goal here is huge and clearly very challenging. So one way the NHS has started to do this is they've designated three scopes. I'll walk through those quickly, but the the ambition here is that, or the intent here, is that the scopes go from what they can directly control, so the easiest things to make net zero, through to what is much more challenging and will require healthcare industry-wide collaboration. So the NHS sees scope one as direct emissions. So here we're thinking about, I know I mentioned the anesthetic gases that they use in hospitals, but we're talking about ambulances and their fleet, and we're talking about on-site fossil fuel use. We've then got scope two, which is to do with the purchasing of energy and electricity. So that's quite a specific one. Uh, There aren't as many players in that space, which I think is why they've called that out as something different. You need to speak to a more limited group of organizations to affect change there. And then, as you mentioned, Steph, we've got the, the big beast of scope three, which is the NHS's indirect emissions and their supply chain. And here we're talking about PPE that might be made in Southeast Asia that is then used in NHS hospitals, how do we make that net zero? And drugs that we might purchase from GSK or AstraZeneca, how do we make those net zero? And that really is the more challenging piece and for the healthcare-wide industry. And as you referenced, I think why they've given themselves an extra five years to affect that. So it's really recognition of the challenge there. Ali and, and Steph, thanks for digging into these three scopes. And, you know, sometimes it's easier for us to kind of break it down into its parts. And I, I think that, you know, you talked specifically around scope two and three in the world of indirect emissions, and you gave some really good examples. And reading about this, you know, the idea of waste also comes to mind. And you think about both the U.S. healthcare system and the U.K. health system. You know, waste is something that I think folks can kind of wrap their arms around. But wh- where does waste fall in the areas of focus for net zero? Does, does it fall in scope two and scope three? Can you give us some insight on that? Ryan, that's such an interesting point because when we think about net zero, that very much is a simple equation on your carbon emissions, but anthropogenic or human impacts on, on our planet don't stop with carbon emissions. So net zero really is a focus on the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases going into, going into the atmosphere. So net zero doesn't cover things like, well, if I use PP in my hospital, how is that disposed of? Does it end up in in the sea? Does it go to landfill? Is it burnt? Whatever that approach might be. So I would say if you you are focusing on purely net zero, um, you, you are missing other elements of human impact, such as waste, but also things like noise pollution, impacting environments. So there are things that are being missed that do need to be picked up elsewhere for sure. So we walk through what the NHS's goals are and how they've scoped it out. And I think we've, we've hovered around this idea of progress to date since publishing their strategy. I'm curious, what are we seeing? There's actually been a lot of positive progress that's been made, but I think the first that comes to mind is that the NHS actually performed the world's first net zero surgery recently. And essentially a surgical team at the University Hospital of Birmingham performed a keyhole procedure to remove bowel cancer. And the patient was discharged safely and was recovering well, all while the surgery was completely net zero. 
So some of the actions that the team took were using reusable gowns, drapes, scrub caps. They implemented a plan for minimizing electricity use. So things like heating and lighting. They also talked about and recycled a lot of single-use equipment used in surgery. So they worked directly with their industry partners. And one that they also did was giving medication through the veins for general anesthesia rather than anesthetic gases. So Ollie, like you mentioned, it is a huge contributor to the greenhouse effect. And other areas were that I think even some of the surgeons ran or cycled to the hospital that day. I think this just goes to show that, you know, while people might think these are small steps towards net zero and sustainability transformation, I think all together has made a, you know, really exciting and huge impact. And it shows that if it could be done, if it can be done here and performed safely, that, you know, it could be done and adopted in other areas as well. Steph, you just bring up a really good point. And I, you know, as we think about kind of the snowball effect of starting things that may at first glance not have a large effect on the environment and reducing waste, you know, you talk about disposable gowns, thinking about the upfront cost of non-disposable gowns over disposable gowns or any any kind of medical garment seems difficult for a leader at the NHS or a leader in any health system. But remembering that you have to resupply those disposable gowns over time and creating more supply chain churn, when if you're able to change the way of thinking and take that idea and look at the advantages of reusable medical garments and switching to, it's, it's huge. It's a huge change. And I think that you bring things like this up as little things that can affect larger change. And it's just difficult with all of the other strategic priorities at a hospital, but I just think it's really important to raise these small changes up. And Ryan, I think the other thing that's interesting is like, this is a great story on what can be done, right? What's possible. The key to success is going to be how do you scale it and be consistent in it? And then how does it, to Steph's point, how does it apply to other practices within the hospital? A lot of this couldn't have been made possible without the underpinning of things like the NHS Green Plans and the Health and Care Act of 2022 that was released in July. And the Green Plans essentially provide that structured way for each trust and integrated care system to set out their carbon reduction initiatives that are currently underway, and then also look at their plans for the next three years. And I think it's important because each trust was given the guidance to create those plans but they were actioned to create these plans based on their needs. So ultimately it's made them more accountable and own, you know, what needs to be done to reach their net zero targets. And then in terms of the Health and Care Act of 2022, this just provides more guidance around looking at their net zero admission targets, their environmental targets, and gives NHS England power to publish statutory guidance to support the system on their path towards net zero. So publications like their strategy and republishing of their net zero supplier roadmap are all guidance to support the trusts and the integrated care systems to deliver against their targets while also still improving the health and care of patients and the public. And for the context of our US colleagues, Steph, thought I'd add to there are, there are about, I think there's 245 trusts in the UK that have had to produce a green plan for how they're going to get from today to the 2014 and 2045 goals. And the vast majority have published those green plans. Uh, and now I'm moving on to the more, the more challenging step of, of executing those. I think it's interesting to reflect on the impact that COVID has had in some ways of actually speeding up the delivery of those gr green plans, 
but also in other ways having had negative impacts. So some of the changes we've seen in how healthcare is delivered in the UK as a result of COVID, so increased remote outpatient appointments, uh, improved access to mental care through that, increasing shift to digital pathways, that really is reducing our, our carbon footprint. We're not having people going into hospitals, traveling long distances, having to attend in-person appointments. So some of that is speeding up the, the adoption of these green plans. But I know we referenced it earlier, but you've also got things like big increase in single-use items, single-use plastic, big demand for PPE, increasing cleaning products. So Ryan, I know you mentioned water, water waste earlier. If everything has to be washed every single day or multiple times a day, you know, this is a huge increase in the pollutants that we're, we're putting out into our water systems. So it's interesting, COVID has had a real mix of impacts on the sustainability of the NHS. I agree, Ali. When I was thinking about, as you dug into the COVID effects of net zero or just kind of the environment, I think it's it's a little bit of a paradox and mixed, right? You think about how the lockdown really kind of mitigated and eliminated the movement of combustible automobiles, which as the WHO talks a lot about how air pollution, you know, contributes to, you know, almost 10% of total death in the world, air pollution. And there was just a continuous kind of decrease of air pollution being expressed into the atmosphere. And now that, you know, most lockdowns across the globe are lifted, you know, what have we seen? What have we done to kind of continue reduce particulate matter into the atmosphere. And again, it, it's it's a mixed bag that we could talk about for a long time, but you think about developing and building green-based facilities and ambulatory settings so that folks that do not have access to healthcare have a faster path using community transportation or the use of telehealth for non-physical face-to-face necessity appointments. So there, there's all of these triggers that I think we can continue to talk about and execute around how we transport patients to facilities in a more green way. And I know you mentioned water waste. I think air waste is another big opportunity for us to continue some of the learnings we had during the pandemic. And Ryan, it's going to be really fascinating over the, the next two, three years to see. So pre-COVID, the majority of appointments were in person. During, we know that a lot went online, it went digital. And then what's going to happen in the next two, three, five years? Are we going to continue this model where we're pushing as many appointments as possible to being remote? Or uh, is patient experience going to dictate that actually people prefer to see their, to see their doctor in person? That's an interesting point, Ollie. And I think we've seen some numbers initially say that tele-remote virtual care, right, is, is evening out a little bit. The one thing that came to mind as you and Steph were talking through the NHS is just the dramatic difference in the U.S. I mean, you think about how large the U.S. health system is and almost 5,000 hospitals exist in the U.S. I think it's been a handful, Ryan, maybe a couple more than that, that have signed on to the Biden administration pledge to reduce emissions over the next decade but it has not been that many hospitals. And so when I think about this contextually, not to compare and contrast, but I do think that that the NHS seems to be further ahead in addressing this and trying to incorporate it into their operating model and the, their way of thinking than many US health systems have. Although some of the bigger ones 
have stepped up and, and raised their hand to say, yes, we want to be part of this, as well as some really large pharma companies that have stepped up and said, we want to support the Biden administration's goals to reduce net zero practices over the next 10 years. But I do think it's, it's different here in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. when it comes to the focus on, on net zero and just where we are in the maturity curve as a system is really in its infancy. As Ollie and Steph alluded, in the UK, there's a three-step process for net zero. Well, the Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra had a similar one, two, three pledge that asked health systems to reduce their organization's emissions and public report on it, to complete an inventory of their supply chain emissions, and to kind of create some plans around it to help facilitate this idea. And the difference, I would say, is that it's a voluntary pledge. Without judgment, health systems in the U.S., just like the NHS, has a list of kind of headwinds right now after the pandemic of what they need to prioritize, and you can't prioritize everything. And what we're seeing in the healthcare system in the U.S. is, in my estimation, these pledges or this priority around the climate crisis is is kind of not being prioritized. So I do believe that we can learn a lot from our friends in the U.K. and the NHS, and so that we can see what the actual ROI of that is. And, and I think it's in everyone's best interest to try to prioritize some of the similar practices that are being executed or starting to be executed in the UK. There seems to be a lot of benefit around driving towards net zero. And I think when we look at what the NHS is doing going forward, what do those benefits look like? So, I mean, as you can imagine, there's many benefits of the NHS working towards their net zero commitments. But I think one that Ollie and I talked about recently was the importance of net zero to their staff. And I think we read recently in a survey that nine out of 10 staff agreed that individual behavior to support the environment was just as important at work as it is outside of work. And I think, Ryan, that links very closely to what you said earlier around mindset change, because I think the NHS recognizes that as well. And they've actually created a Chief of Sustainability Officers Clinical Fellowship Scheme, which currently has about seven fellows from various clinical backgrounds. So, for example, medical doctors specializing in anesthesia to join this sort of greener NHS team and directorates throughout the NHS to embed things like carbon reduction principles, across the system and also empower their colleagues and other clinicians to make those changes and engage their policymakers to help them reach their net zero targets. Thanks, Steph. And this is also a shift towards a model of, of preventative care and, and stopping people from getting ill in the first place in the UK, which is, is typically considered to be perhaps a more Japanese approach to healthcare. So things like if we reduce emissions now and air quality improves, that is going to reduce the number of people coming into hospital with COPD or having asthma or long-term breathing issues. So other benefits are if people are no longer going to use cars to get around and they're going to cycle or walk, then huge benefits from having a more active population. So I think this really can be a catalyst for a shift to that preventative care approach and actually a healthier population in the UK across the board, which will clearly help the NHS as well. Yeah, I think another change that we saw in some of those green plans is a lot of the systems being more conscious about their, their food options as well provided in the canteens. So some of those green plans highlighted an effort to shift to a more plant-based option, 
now, which not only has a positive impact on net zero and carbon emissions, but in general, as you said, Ali, it promotes healthier diets and efforts towards that preventative care. Exactly, Steph. And it's very easy for us to sit here and say, oh, there's this benefit and hospitals should do X, Y, and Z. But I think it's important to consider the context that hospital leaders are in at the moment in the UK. Trusts are being asked to make this positive change for our environment, at a local air pollution scale, for example, and also at a global climate change scale. But this is in the context of we know that there's cost cutting across the board in, in the UK at the moment and government services. We have long waiting times at hospitals, especially you know people are waiting six hours for an ambulance. As you referenced earlier as well, Steph, we have staffing shortages across doctors and nurses and also in the wider economy as well. So there are different cycles and timelines at play here. We've got cost cutting that has been a pressure on the NHS for over a decade now. And we've also got the pressures of long waiting times off the back of COVID, which is a, a much more recent impact. Well, Steph and Ali, this has been a really enlightening conversation. And I want to thank you for joining us on Trending Health to talk through climate change and its impact on the healthcare system and what NHS is doing to take matters into their own hands. It dawned on me as we were talking today that while this will not be easy, it is so critical because a healthy climate really does translate into healthy people. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change, please visit trendinghealth.com.